2: When temporary protected status for people from El Salvador ends, that means thousands of people will have to leave our region. But what about all the money they send back home? TPS to me is the absolute best policy you could have for economic development in a region. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll track the regional and global impact of immigration policy. We'll also learn about a unique program that's teaching city kids how to play a sport that's giving them a ticket to elite prep schools. It is a transformative, life-altering program. We'll also hear about a case that caused Vermont's Republican governor to change his position on gun control, and we'll discuss the link between mental illness and creativity.
3: There's that issue that there's that possibility that these kinds of problems or these kinds of
2: dilemmas spark creativity. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankoski. Thanks for joining us. More than 7,000 Salvadorans living in Massachusetts and Connecticut with temporary immigration status face potential deportation next year when the humanitarian program called TPS allowing them to live in this country expires. Connecticut Public Radio's Diane Orson reports on two state residents who must decide whether to return to El Salvador or prepare to become untraceable.
0: Sitting in his tidy apartment in Bridgeport, 38 year old Jose Zavala describes crossing the U.S. border in 2001 when a major earthquake hit El Salvador. The disaster allowed him to receive legal protection known as Temporary Protected Status, or TPS. He came to Connecticut and began a job at a car wash where he's worked for 17 years. He got married and took a second job at night cleaning office buildings. Savala's nine- and six-year-old daughters play quietly nearby, but they're listening in on the grown-up conversation.
1: When I had my first daughter, I thought, this is it. I'm here to stay, and this is going to be their country. This is where they're going to be growing up.
0: Now the family's future is unclear. The Trump administration plans to terminate TPS for El Salvador and six other nations. TPS is granted to foreign-born nationals when extraordinary circumstances like environmental disasters or armed conflict make it unsafe for them to return to their native countries. Savala says he might go back, but he might not.
1: If I don't have TPS, I might have to live a life of hiding however I could. I don't know. The worry is mostly for my daughters. Sometimes my wife will say that I might have to go back to El Salvador, and my oldest, Lisette, she says she doesn't want me to leave.
0: Savala's wife is undocumented and does not have TPS protection. She spoke to WNPR on the condition that we not use her name.
4: Yes, it's sad because we've had so many years together, had our daughters and raised them, and now we're facing the prospect of him having to go back. It's ugly. It's sad. It makes you sad to know this.
0: And worried. U.S. officials say conditions that originally led to El Salvador's TPS designation no longer exist. But previous administrations extended TPS for other reasons as well. They determined that poverty and gang violence made it almost impossible for the small Central American nation to safely reabsorb 200,000 Salvadoran TPS holders from the U.S. El Salvador has one of the highest homicide rates in the world, and the State Department has warned U.S. citizens to reconsider going there. Another longtime Salvadoran TPS holder from Bridgeport, Juan Mejia, says he's anxious.
1: Imagine. I've lived here feeling protected, and suddenly all that protection is taken away. I feel uncovered. I feel like I've lost what I had for all this time.
0: TPS has allowed Mejia to work legally in the U.S. since 2001. He's a gas station attendant during the day and a part-time janitor at night.
1: My life would change drastically if I became undocumented. I might not be able to hold the jobs I have now because I'd have to show my documents. I wouldn't be able to have a bank account because the first thing that they asked me when I opened it was for my social security number. Getting car insurance would be impossible. So would renting an apartment.
0: According to the Center for Migration Studies, 88 percent of Salvadoran TPS holders work in the U.S. labor force. Many, like Mejia, support their families back in El Salvador by sending remittances. Glenn Formica, an immigration lawyer in New Haven, describes temporary protected status as a hugely important foreign policy device.
2: When you have remittances, Western Union sends it right to the person who's trying to rebuild their house. And it costs the United States taxpayer almost nothing because the person who now has a temporary work authorization, he's asking the United States government for an opportunity to work. So for the people that view that, you know, there should never be a government handout, TPS, to me, is the absolute best policy you could have for economic development in a region.
0: Formica says most TPS holders who had other ways to gain legal status have already elected for them. So with TPS ending and no comprehensive immigration solution in sight, families like the Savalas face a tough choice. They could be torn apart, or the TPS holder can prepare for life as an undocumented immigrant under a constant threat of deportation. Savala's wife says hers is by no means the only family in Connecticut confronting this choice.
4: Lots of families. Many here in Bridgeport in the same situation. Lots of
0: families. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Diane Orson.
2: If the people we just heard from are forced to go back to El Salvador, many of them will go through a government re-entry center. WBR's Shannon Dooling was recently in El Salvador and visited the processing center known as La Chakra.
4: Family members start arriving around noon, walking up to the blue steel gate and explaining to the guard they're here to meet their son, their daughter, their brother or their sister. This is La Chacra, roughly translated to The Farm or The Grange. It's the government-run center in San Salvador, where people deported from U.S. federal immigration detention are processed back into El Salvador. Up to three flights from the U.S. arrive in San Salvador each week, with as many as 135 people on each flight. The day we visit, there are 50 deportees arriving, mostly men between the ages of 20 and 30. During the flight from the U.S., they've been shackled at the hands, waist, and feet. They're unshackled when they land in El Salvador and taken by bus to La Chacra. They file off the buses one by one and head inside down a narrow hallway with a few sinks. Some of the men wash their hands and their faces. They're ushered into a large waiting room that smells of soap, and they're seated in bright orange plastic chairs. A government official stands up in front of the group and speaks into a microphone. Good afternoon and welcome from the government of El Salvador. Everyone is assigned a number, like you'd get at the DMV or the deli, and waits their turn for an interview with an immigration agent. So right now, the recently arrived deportees are sitting in the waiting room and you'll hear their names being shouted out and basically they're receiving bags full of their items that they had when they were detained, when they were in ICE custody in the United States. So um, some of them have paper bags, some of them have mesh bags with flip-flops and toilet paper and other sort of essentials. Oh, and you know what? I'm just seeing everyone putting their belts back on. Their belts would have been taken away from them when they were in ICE custody.
5: Hey, what's going on? Hey, tell my que ya already here in El Salvador if si are going to come to get me to sí no, me, please. No?
4: There's a counter where people can walk up and ask to use a phone um, so they can call their family or call someone who might be able to come and pick them up.
5: If they're going si to get me to get I'm in El Salvador. Yo. No, I'm... Estoy...
4: We're listening to one conversation right now, and a, a young man is uh, trying to explain to someone where he is, but he, he didn't know the address. He actually didn't even know if he was in San Salvador or what part of the country he was in.
5: detention La dirección general detención. Dirección. Detención. dice.
4: So he had to ask uh, one of the employees here uh, for the address so that he could tell the person on the phone where he is. 20-year-old Jose Fuentes is back in El Salvador for the first time in six years. He was deported from Las Vegas. He says it's weird to be here. Everything feels strange, and he doesn't like it here. Fuentes says it's dangerous here. He left when he was 14, after being pressured to join a gang. The family waiting room is in a separate building, behind tinted glass. We walk by and see a young man waiting outside wearing a blue and white El Salvador soccer jersey. He says he was living in Boston before he was deported. His mother steps out of the waiting room and they share a hug. The 21-year-old places his hand on his mother's back while she cries with her head buried in his shoulder. They walk out through the blue steel gate together and start the four-hour drive back home. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Shannon Dooling in Boston.
2: You can see photos of that reporting trip from WBUR's Jesse Costa on our website, nextnewengland.org. We also have links to several stories from our Facing Change series there. Across the country, urban squash programs are teaching the sport of squash to low income kids in the cities. There's also academic tutoring mixed in with the ultimate goal of getting students to college. Hartford, Connecticut's urban squash program started in 2014, and the first recruits are just entering high school. Connecticut Public Radio's Vanessa Della Torre has more on how Capital Squash is already making an impact.
6: 4 years ago, the nonprofit Capital Squash started bringing neighborhood kids to the squash courts at Trinity College in Hartford.
7: They start off having never seen a squash court before, and by the time they've moved on, they're they're really competent squash players.
6: That's Paul Asiante. He's kind of a big deal. Asiante coaches Team USA and has led the Trinity men's squash team to a bunch of national titles. And yet,
7: capital Squash is the single most important thing we do here. It is a transformative, life-altering program.
6: It's no secret that squash is a predominantly white sport in the U.S., a prep school sport. That's because squash courts are usually at members-only clubs or private schools where access is limited. But when someone like Julissa Moda gets a chance to play this elite racket sport, the opportunities are huge. Julissa is a 14-year-old Mexican-American in Hartford and a top 100 player in her age bracket, according to U.S. Squash. In eighth grade, Julissa was being heavily recruited by top boarding schools in the country. I didn't think I would be even able to be a candidate for these type of schools. Julissa was a fifth grader at a Hartford neighborhood school when she first heard about the sport. The executive director of this new program had stopped by Julissa's class. She told the kids that squash could be their ticket to college. Then she said, guess how much this cost? I still remember this. And then I thought it was, I had to pay something. So I was like, oh, never mind. And then I, st- I kind of just like fell back. And then she said, nothing. It costs nothing. Capital Squash recruited Ku Pa from the same Hartford School in fifth grade. Koo is 15 now and a refugee from Thailand. When she first heard about Squash. I thought it was like racquetball, but it was completely different. I'm not really sure how to describe it. But once you get in the flow, it's really fun. It's really hard to stop. Ku's mom is a factory worker, and her dad works at Dunkin' Donuts. Now Ku is on her way to the Ethel Walker School on her scholarship, a Connecticut boarding school where tuition, room, and board cost at least $60,000 a year. As for Julissa, her top choice was Taft School. It's a boarding school in Watertown, Connecticut. It's just a very prestigious school. Julissa was at the Trinity Squash Courts when she found out which school she got into. Inside the mystery box was a sweatshirt from Taft. Julissa got on the phone with her mom, who was working. Her mom cleans offices. She said she fell on the floor. Oh. <laughs> she fainted. <laughs> Taft School gave her a full ride all four years of high school, a scholarship package worth at least $245,000. Si toda. Summer is winding down, and it's almost time to move to boarding school. Ku is at Capital Squash headquarters and says she's excited about decorating her dorm and being in a new place. But she's also nervous. Well, sometimes I feel proud of myself for coming this far. And, but also sometimes I have my days where I think, like, can I really live up to the expectations? Like, will I be a disappointment like, just let everybody down? But then I try not to think about that too much and be like, they want you for a reason. Julissa says she has her own moments of self-doubt but tries to remember how she got here. All that work juggling school with Capital Squash and prepping for admissions interviews. And I remember how stressed I felt and how I overcame it all. And then I get, like, boost my confidence and I say, oh, I really worked hard for this and I deserve to be here. Capital Squash is helping the girls move into their dorms. The program says it plans to follow all of its students through high school and college while also accepting new kids in the pipeline. Tryouts are coming up to add to the 43 students now in the program. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Vanessa de la Torre.
2: Coming up, we'll hear about the case that caused Vermont's Republican governor to change his position on gun control. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Back in February, the day after the school shooting in Parkland, Florida, an 18-year-old named Jack Sawyer was arrested in Vermont for allegedly planning a similar attack. The arrest motivated Vermont's Republican governor to reverse his position on gun control, ushering in the most sweeping gun control legislation in Vermont's history, previously one of the most gun-friendly states in the nation. But at the same time, the case against the young man fell apart. Vermont Public Radio's new podcast, Jolted, is a five-part podcast about a school shooting that didn't happen, the line between thought and crime, and a Republican governor in a rural state who changed his mind about gun laws. In the first episode, we'll hear about how police found out about Jack Sawyer's plot and how they decided to arrest him. We'll hear from co-hosts Nina Keck and Liam Elder-Connors, both reporters for VPR.
8: It's late morning on Tuesday, February 13th in Rutland, Vermont. An 18-year-old named Jack Sawyer walks into Dick's Sporting Goods and heads to the back corner of the store. On the wall, more than 150 guns are lined up parade-style between displays of kids' hockey skates and plastic deer decoys. Jack hands over his Vermont driver's license, fills out a 4473 firearms transaction form, and just after 11 that morning, walks out with a pump-action Maverick 88 shotgun and four boxes of ammunition. The next day is Valentine's Day, and 1,500 miles away in a town called Parkland, Florida, a 19-year-old former student shoots and kills 17 of his classmates and teachers. You probably remember.
7: Now to a developing story that we're tracking in firing. Those who could ran, hiding in classrooms,
9: even closets. This took place in Parkland, Florida, at Douglas High School. Meanwhile,
8: here in Vermont, Jack Sawyer targets shoots with the shotgun he bought the day before. Now he can cross the gun off the shopping list he keeps in a college-ruled spiral-bound notebook. On the cover of that notebook, Jack has taped a title, The Journal of an Active Shooter. It's printed in a decorative curly cue font. At the bottom, he's taped his name, written in marker, Jack S. Inside the journal, in scrawling handwriting, Jack describes his plan to shoot up his former high school. We know this because the journal was later made public as part of the state's evidence against Jack. In the journal, his entries include statements like, quote, The biggest thing I'm trying to figure out right now is how I can get as far as I can into the shooting before cops bust me first and shoot me dead, end quote. It's entries like this and a startling confession that would land Jack in jail, staring down a possible life sentence. His case would catapult the state into a debate about where free speech ends and a mass killing begins.
1: This is a story about a young man who had plans to shoot up his former high school.
7: He told detectives that he had been reading uh, books on the Columbine shooting.
1: Plans that were foiled by a teenager.
5: I know I need to tell someone, like, immediately.
1: As our country grapples with school shootings and how to stop them, this is a story about a school shooting that didn't happen and how it caused a Republican governor in a rural state to change his mind about gun laws.
2: In the aftermath of Florida, this situation in Fairhaven has
1: jolted me. It's a story about the decisions people had to make. So is it your position that no crime was committed here at all? And about how sometimes, when something happens close to home,
2: I had to do some reflecting, some soul-searching myself.
1: Things change. Sign those
2: bills! Sign those bills!
1: It's Friday, February 16th, three days after Jack Sawyer bought that shotgun at Dick's and two days after Parkland. I'm in a conference room across from the governor's office waiting for a briefing from state officials.
3: Uh, Good afternoon, everyone. Tom Anderson, Commissioner of Public Safety. Uh, This has been a very sad, disturbing, and tragic week for the United States and Vermont.
1: That morning, I'd gotten a press release saying police had arrested an 18-year-old for threatening, quote, to cause mass casualties at a high school in Fairhaven, Vermont. It's the first time I hear about Jack Sawyer. Honestly, I figured he'd made a bad joke about shooting up a high school. Police are probably dotting their I's and crossing their T's because Parkland is so fresh on everyone's mind.
3: In Florida, 17 families have been forever changed, a school has been forever changed, and a community has been forever changed.
1: Some TV stations are taking the press conference live a handful of state officials are just a few feet in front of me. I hope I'm not blocking the cameras.
3: In Vermont, the Fairhaven police and the Vermont State Police yesterday arrested an 18-year-old who was aiming to cause the same type of horror and mayhem uh, in Fairhaven.
1: Then, a major with the Vermont State Police takes the podium.
7: Uh, Good afternoon, Um, Glenn Hall, and the major of the criminal
3: division.
1: Slowly, methodically, the major lays out what Jack Sawyer told police.
7: He told detectives that he was planning from a couple of years ago to shoot up Fairhaven High School. He told detectives he did buy a shotgun the
1: previous day. Jack told detectives he'd come back to Vermont to carry out the shooting, although Jack said he hadn't thought about the plan for at least a week.
7: He detailed specific plans as to how he was going to carry out the shooting. He said he would have carried out the shooting, but wasn't sure when. And even with law enforcement intervention, He would carry it out uh, when he had the opportunity.
1: The room is unnaturally still. As the major recounts details, I feel like I can't keep up. I glance around at the other reporters.
7: We conducted a search of his vehicle and detectives... The
1: major continues to recite statements from Jack's confession. He says when detectives searched Jack's car, they found the shotgun he purchased at Dick's.
7: 12-gauge ammunition. A journal. That Jack Sawyer admitted was his. That journal was titled, The Journal of an Active Shooter.
1: That's the notebook that would become essential evidence in the case against him.
7: We recovered books on Columbine, a digital camera, a gas mask, a video recorder, and thumb drives.
1: Jack Sawyer is held without bail and charged with four felonies.
7: The charges on the affidavit are attempted aggravated murder, attempted first-degree murder, and attempted aggravated assault with a deadly weapon.
1: These are some serious charges. If he's convicted, Jack could be sentenced to life in prison without parole.
8: The town at the heart of this story, Fairhaven, is right on the New York border. It's small, with about 3,000 people. And it's pretty, with a fenced in-town green. There's a tall, white, New England-style church at one end, across from a Dollar General store. In the summer, Fairhaven hosts weekly concerts on the green, where they give out free ice cream every other Friday. The town calls itself the Slate Center of the Nation, thanks to a quarry which has been mined by the same company for more than 150 years. Not surprisingly, the high school sports teams are called the Slaters. Even before Jack Sawyer's arrest, some folks in town might have recognized his name. That's because back in 2016, Jack had made people at school nervous, posting threatening things on Facebook and writing a research paper on Columbine. That spring, Jack dropped out of school. And not long after that, his parents sent him to an expensive school for troubled teens in Maine. He spent more than a year there. Fairhaven Police Chief William Humphreys says people start paying attention to Jack when he comes back to Vermont in February of this year. He's living out of his car, couch surfing at friends' houses.
3: Jack had told his friend that he had bought bought a shotgun, and the friend didn't understand why he bought a shotgun when you, you're trying to get a job and you're living out of your car and you don't have any money that you spend in 200 bucks. doesn't seem logical.
8: Here's what leads to Jack's arrest on Thursday, February 15th. On Tuesday of that week, the mother of one of Jack's friends, Here's her daughter and another friend talking about Jack's new gun. This is the same guy who'd had the disturbing Facebook posts, the guy who was into Columbine and had dropped out two years before. She doesn't really connect the two until the next day, Wednesday, when she gets a notification on her phone about the Parkland shooting. That's when she calls 911. That night, the school superintendent puts Fairhaven Union in a sort of lockdown. Chief Humphreys goes to talk to Jack and finds him, putting away his shotgun after target shooting.
3: And it was 8 o'clock at night. It was dark then in the winter, obviously, and he was target shooting in the yard with a shotgun he had just bought.
8: And then Chief Humphreys leaves Jack there and drives back to the station. See, Jack is 18. At the time, buying a gun was legal for him. And the last time anyone here can remember Jack making people nervous it was years ago.
3: He wasn't threatening suicide. He wasn't threatening anybody. It's not illegal to target hunt target. He was on private property. He wasn't shooting across a road. You know, you, you have to commit a crime or something
1: for us to take action on. The next morning, a Thursday, Fairhaven Union High School starts more or less as usual.
3: We had a we had a school to run. So, we...
1: but after the school lockdown the night before. Fairhaven's principal Jason Rascoe says students and teachers are nervous. I'm
3: going around just to make sure I'm out and about. We have a kind of a, what we call, I call it an intel, if you will. You know, like the number of uh, the, chief, the chiefs were here.
1: The school superintendent and Chief Humphreys arrived to huddle with Principal Rascoe. Here's Humphreys.
3: We were kind of formulating, OK, this is the information we know. This is what we're going to put out to the school to try to, to, try to be transparent and try to explain what, why we rerouted the buses the night before.
1: They send an email to parents to basically say, yes, we are aware people are nervous, but we believe the threat is not credible. The superintendent has just finished sending the email when Humphreys discovers he got it wrong. The threat is credible.
3: Dispatch called me and they said, hey, I have a Dutchess County um, Sheriff's Office. Would officer would like to speak to you on the phone.
1: Dutchess County is in New York State, Okay. three hours south. So I had him put it through to my cell phone. I get
3: on the phone, he immediately asks me, hey, um, do you know a Jack Sawyer? "Mm, Yeah. (laughs) I say we're actually working a case right now where his his name came up. Well, I have some text message that you really need to look at. I think the color went out of my face. I went white, like, ooh, wait a minute, this is not good.
1: At this point, Principal Rasco, who'd left to check on students, rushes back to his office.
3: People's faces are...
1: The text messages had been handed over by a 17-year-old in upstate New York, and her actions would alter the course of history here in Vermont. Her name is Angela McDevitt. She'd met Jack at the therapeutic high school in Maine. The two had been messaging back and forth on Facebook when Angela mentioned the shooting in Parkland. Jack's response stunned her. He called the Parkland shooting, quote, "...fantastic." He said he 100% supported it.
5: I was so in shock. like I was just like, you can't say that like people are dead.
1: We'll talk more with Angela in a future episode. By the end of the day on Thursday, February 15th, Jack Sawyer was charged with attempted murder and held without bail in a local jail.
8: This story could have ended with Jack Sawyer's arrest. Police got Jack in custody before he could hurt anyone. Fairhaven, Vermont, did not join Parkland, Florida, or Santa Fe, Texas, or any of the two dozen or so schools that had been in the national headlines for school shootings in 2018. You could say there was no shooting because the system worked. Someone saw something, they said something, police responded, and made an arrest. And yet, what didn't happen in Fairhaven sent shockwaves through the entire state. The case opened up huge legal questions in Vermont about whether our laws are adequate for our times, about the line between free speech and a criminal act. And it set in motion something truly unforeseeable in this rural state. Traitor! 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 It's eight and a half weeks after Jack Sawyer was arrested. Vermont's Republican governor walks onto the steps of the State House building in Montpelier and surveys the people packed on the big lawn. The governor sits down at a desk and signs three bills.
2: That's why today we choose action over inaction, doing something over doing nothing.
1: Under the new law, most Vermonters have to be 21 to buy a gun. Bump stocks and large capacity magazines are banned. Most private sales need a background check, Guns can be removed from scenes of domestic violence and taken away from people who pose a risk to themselves or others. In a whirlwind, lawmakers in Montpelier had pushed the bills through committee hearings and votes, and Governor Phil Scott had signed into law the most sweeping gun control bills in Vermont history. According to the Washington Post, since the shooting at Columbine in 1999, more than 187,000 students have experienced a school shooting. Yet, despite that at the federal level, little has changed when it comes to gun control. Where we do see a change in gun policy is at the state and local level, where communities are directly affected by a shooting. After 20 kids were killed at Sandy Hook, Connecticut enacted some of the strongest gun control laws in the country including a ban of high-capacity magazines and mandatory background checks for all gun purchases. Less than a month after the shooting in Parkland, Florida passed gun control laws that banned bump stocks, raised the minimum age to buy a gun, and also armed school employees. The story of Jack Sawyer and the story of gun control in Vermont are intertwined the affidavit police used to document evidence against Jack Sawyer moved a Republican governor to reverse his stance on gun laws in a state with some of the most permissive gun laws in the country after a school shooting that didn't happen. And yet, on the same day Governor Phil Scott signs those bills, the legal case against Jack Sawyer falls apart. Just 100 yards away from where the governor sits, signing the bills on the statehouse lawn, Vermont's Supreme Court justices look at the same evidence that Scott had seen and come to a different conclusion.
2: That's Liam Elder Connors from VPR's new podcast, Jolted. He co-reported this episode with Nina Keck thanks to editor and project manager Emily Corwin. You can subscribe to Jolted wherever you get your podcasts or listen at joltedpodcast.org. Coming up, we'll meet the man known as the great god of depression. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. In the early 2000s, a Boston neurologist named Alice Flaherty was going through a bout of manic depression. She turned to a memoir by the famous author, William Styron, who wrote about his own struggle with depression. Within a few years, Styron would fall into another depression, show up at Flaherty's office, and beg her for help. Their story is explored in a new podcast out of Showcase at Radiotopia called The Great God of Depression. Karen Brown co-produced the podcast along with Pagan Kennedy. She's also a senior reporter at NEPR, and she joins us now. Karen, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us.
9: Thank you for having me.
2: Why do you refer to William Styron as the great god of depression?
9: That's actually a term that his doctor, Alice Flaherty, gave to him because he became so well-known as the person who made it okay to be depressed. He wrote this very famous memoir, Darkness Visible. Um, that actually became sort of required reading for a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists. So when Alice Flaherty, before she even met him, before she even became his doctor, when she thought of him, he just sort of had this aura as being the great god of depression. And we just thought that would make a great title for the podcast.
2: Tell tell me more about his life and what led him to write this memoir, What, what it meant to people like Alice.
9: Well, he had a pretty successful literary life up until middle age late middle age even, he wrote Sophie's Choice. A lot of people know him for that book. And he wrote several other well-received novels. And he led a very glamorous life, knew a lot of very important um, authors, actors, politicians. And then after this very successful life, he found himself in a deep, deep depression, clinical depression that he didn't see coming. He didn't know much about it. And he managed to bring himself out of that depression with the help of his family, with the help of um, some doctors. And it was after that that he realized, you know, if someone like me who has this much success and has this many resources can fall so deeply into a depression and not really know what it was when it was coming on, I need to tell the world. Um, And there were a few reasons that he decided to write this memoir, one of them just being how much misconceptions he thought there were out there about what it means to be depressed and about suicide because he was deeply suicidal. Um, And he decided it was time to write a memoir and to really out himself so that it would be okay for other people to admit they had depression. Today, we think about depression in terms of it being an illness, that it's not something to be ashamed of. I think a lot of the time we we think of it that way, but that was much less common before he wrote his memoir.
2: I want to play a clip of the podcast from the third episode where Styron discusses what he thought a second bout of depression after his, his first recovery might mean. Yes,
0: My question was also about darkness visible, which I read in one great, um, horrified exhale, inhale. Um, Do you worry about becoming depressed again?
3: I think anyone who's suffered massive clinical depression is, to some extent, worried.
9: This is author William Styron speaking in 1997 to an audience in New York. Seven years before, he'd published the best-selling memoir, Darkness Visible, about how he had defeated depression.
3: One of the things that I think destroys people rapidly when they suffer clinical depression is the fact that it's the first time it's ever happened to them. And it's so cataclysmically ghastly that, that they're taken unawares. If it were to happen to me again, at least I would know what I'm facing and that would be an advantage already.
4: Thank you.
2: After this, though, uh, William Styron did relapse into depression. Was he right? Was it easier to deal with the second time knowing what he knew?
9: You know, we, of course, never talked to him directly, but from what we've heard from his family and from interviews that he did at the time, he still suffered very greatly from that second depression and in some ways I think he may have suffered longer from that second depression. But he did know what was coming and he did know sort of how to get help. His family knew what they were dealing with and they knew, you know, how to try and get him help. So, in a sense, there was somewhat of an advantage. I think the particularly sad part about this relapse for William Styron was that he had written. This memoir about recovering from depression and he had become sort of an icon of recovery and he had given hope to a lot of people that, you know, you can beat this thing. And then he felt tremendous guilt when he had a relapse, which really isn't fair. You know, this is an illness and sometimes you have a relapse, but it sort of added to the pain that he experienced.
2: So this is where the other subject of your podcast comes in, neurologist Alice Flaherty. Tell us a bit, Karen, about why Alice was uniquely suited to treating William Styron.
9: Well, she herself had gone through some serious bouts of mental illness before she even met William Styron. That's what led her to the memoir to begin with. She's still around. She's still practicing. She's a very smart, very empathetic, and very literary doctor. She herself wrote a memoir. We're going to be listening to another clip that describes a little bit about what went into her memoir and and what she had experienced herself. I would get to work and I'd say, well, now I'm going to do some science, and instead I would just start writing more on the computer. I tried, you know, at one point writing on my arm. Um, I would write on toilet paper in the bathroom. That was also very difficult. So then I would try and make sure I had some uh, paper towel with me because that was easier to write on. (laughs) This malady, the too-much writing, had a name, hypergraphia. It's a rare condition that affects people with epilepsy and schizophrenia, and sometimes people with psychosis. In Alice's case, the urge to write was accompanied by her need to devour books and scientific articles. Day and night, she either spewed out her own sentences or gobbled up other people's books. She had gone word mad. mad. I would have these pressured thoughts all the time. There were so many thoughts in my head. Very much the ideas would feel like they came into me from the outside. And I also didn't trust my memory. I felt like I had to write them down because they were coming so fast and they would slip away. So I had pages and pages of these half thoughts because I had to just write them down, but 99% of them were just garbage. She's actually no longer hypergraphic, but that section really explains kind of how crazy she felt. She called herself actually the only openly crazy doctor at Mass General, and that's why she actually felt uniquely suited to to treat other crazy artists. That's how she put it, and that's how she was given William Styron as a patient.
2: Artists like William Styron, who, who famously had gone through, uh, with his depression, bouts of Writer's block, and in your podcast, there's there's a description that that perhaps the the inability to write led to William Styron's depression, but m- maybe it was the fact that he was so depressed that led to uh, him being unable to write, and and this gets tied up in Alice's own ideas about how depression and creativity are linked, and I. I guess I'm just wondering what what you learned about those linkages Karen through this because that's been one of the great mysteries of creative people throughout throughout time is is how how madness so-called is linked to people's ability to create great things.
9: Yeah, I wish I could say that we came up with the one conclusion about the the connection between madness and creativity. Um What I found was that that question of what is it in the brain that either makes you want to create so much that you feel overpowered by it or that shuts your brain down and that brings on depression and which came first, madness or depression, writer's block or depression, those are the questions that both William Styron and Alice Flaherty found fascinating in their own minds and this sort of collaboration that they had to pursue those those questions and answers really contributed to a very successful doctor-patient relationship. Whether they actually came up with the answer, I think they're probably still trying to find that answer.
2: I want to play another clip from a bonus episode of this podcast that you hosted, and you talked with the actor Tony Shaloub. He's famous for his role in the television show Monk. Let, let's first of all listen because he talks about this this very topic.
3: There's that issue that there's that possibility that these kinds of problems or these kinds of dilemmas spark creativity. And maybe this is not true in Styron's case, but some people don't want to lose that part of them that, that of which there is a piece of madness or a a problem that they're trying to resolve. It's that, you know, the sand and the oyster that, you know, turns into something
2: beautiful. What did you take away from your conversation with Tony Shalhoub, Karen?
9: Well, um, he's actually just a very gracious, interesting man, who is very good friends with Rose Styron, the widow of William Styron, which is why he agreed to to talk with us and to talk a little bit about mental illness, which he had experienced himself when he was younger. One thing he had in common with William Styron, he did not have that degree of depression himself, but as an actor, he represented this character, Adrian Monk, a, a obsessive compulsive detective who sort of had to carry the weight of this whole mental illness as he was representing it at least you know as a fictional character and it was very interesting to talk about just how important it is to express how difficult mental illness is and yet make it okay to to be mentally ill that it's not a shame and also to show the sort of the yin and yang that sometimes your madness your mental illness your pain is also what brings on a certain amount of genius a certain amount of creativity and you know, in some cases, it's so painful that it it's not worth it. In other cases, there is this piece of the pain that people don't want to lose because it comes along with other things that they really like.
2: Hmm. I know that you worked for uh, quite a while on this podcast and that many of the issues that you're talking about here are are unresolved. I think it's clear that mental illness is better understood by the public and people with mental illness are treated much differently than they were when William Styron was first diagnosed back in the 1980s. But I can't help but notice that your podcast came out almost concurrent with the the death by suicide of a very famous author and, and cook, Anthony Bourdain, someone who is much beloved by many people across America and across the world. And much like some of what is discussed in the podcast, Karen, a lot of the reaction to Anthony Bourdain's death Seem to suggest that people didn't understand why someone with so much fame might do this and and were even angry at him for, for cutting his life short. I, I guess I'm wondering if you feel like the, the stigma of mental illness and, and suicide has has changed all that much since that time.
9: I think it has changed. I think certainly there's still stigma. I think there's much less. I think there's much less shame in admitting that you have depression. And I think William Styron probably gets a lot of credit for starting the understanding that depression is an illness and it's not a character flaw. But clearly, many, many people continue to experience it. I think one thing that Anthony Bourdain's suicide, also Kate Spade's suicide was right around that same time, tells us that that it really doesn't matter how glamorous your life is and how successful you are and how you you may have the trappings of what we all think we want in life this is, in fact, an illness that doesn't care about that. And my guess is that sometimes there probably is, especially among people who live in the public sphere, this sense that I shouldn't have this kind of depression or that I shouldn't feel this terrible, and maybe that does stop them from getting the help they need. Maybe there is this pressure that, you know, me of all people shouldn't be so weak. So clearly that must still go on. I mean, I really don't know what specifically happened in those two cases, but I think it does show that mental illness continues to transcend all degrees of of people, success, socioeconomics, Mm -hmm. all of that.
2: Karen Brown is a senior reporter at New England Public Radio. She's co-producer of the new podcast, The Great God of Depression, from Showcase at Radiotopia, and she co-produced it with Pagan Kennedy. You can find a link to the full series on nextnewengland.org. Karen, thanks for joining us once again. I appreciate it. Thank you. Next is produced by Lily Tyson. The executive producer of Next is Katie Tolarski, and our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. We had help this week from Bart Franken. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. Hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com, and thanks to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone, through the Smart Family Foundation of New York, and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston. Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.